we're going to talk today about spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk about the disciplines of study and meditation. Now, we're going to work a little today, and I know that's, whoo, that can be tough, so don't let your eyes glaze over, you know, stick, stick with us here. Um, today, we're going to dig into those disciplines. Now, don't forget, as we talked about before, that work and effort and energy is required to grow spiritually. That's not to be confused with working and laboring to earn your salvation. That doesn't happen. It's a free gift from God. We receive it. It's also not to be confused with, well, if I do these things, then I will impress God, and I'll earn some extra points with him, and I'll curry his favor if I just, you know, really do all these things. No, we're not going to talk. That's not what they're about either. The closest use of the word discipline that we can find in Scripture is probably found where, and we've gone to this a lot lately, where Paul tells Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul tells Timothy, he says, uh, he says, exercise or train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. The New American Standard says, uh, discipline yourself for the purposes of godliness. So we see scriptures telling us, discipline yourself, train yourself. Disciplining, we often think of when we talk about Bible stuff, about some kind of, you know, God's going to spank us or something. But that's not it. Discipline is training. The, the word there uh, that we train yourself to be godly in the Greek is, I think it's pronounced gym, gymnazo, gymnazo, and it's where we get the word gymnasium or gymnastics. And so the idea is, is training, uh, practice. It, it's the idea of, of exercising and becoming fit. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, only we're going to talk about the spiritual side of things. So I want to define spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are biblical practices that we impose upon ourselves. Did you get that? We impose them upon us. God's not making them do us. You know, the church isn't making you do it. They're spiritual disciplines, biblical practices that we impose upon ourselves to make us spiritually fit and healthy. So we're putting structure into our lives intentionally in the pursuit of growing spiritually. And so as we put this structure in our lives, we start practicing these biblical things. We get to know God better. Uh, we get to, we fall more in love with God, and our relationship with God is enriched. So as we embark on this journey, I started thinking about what are some pitfalls to it? What are some hazards? So there's four hazards that I want us to avoid. The first one is turning spiritual discipline into laws. They are not laws. They're practices, things that we put into practice in our lives. And they're not rules. Now, we human beings are great at taking something that's grace-filled and turning it into law, which then becomes dead. And we got to watch out for that. It's, it's a grace-filled endeavor. We're going to pursue the things of God, and they don't become law. So we can't one day say, well, if you're a Christian, then you must be doing this, this, and this, because they're not laws. The second thing is that we don't get superstitious about it. What, what I mean by that is sometimes we get in a rhythm, and maybe we're getting up and we're having prayer time with the Lord, or maybe we're having Bible study or meditation or whatever it is we're doing as our routine. And so we get in this rhythm of doing this routine every morning and practicing spiritual disciplines in our lives. And then one morning we wake up and we're just exhausted. And so we hit the snooze and then we think, oh, I really need to get up and do whatever your discipline for the morning is. Pray, read the Bible, you know, whatever. And you think, oh, I'm just so tired. And you hit snooze again. Then finally you wake up and you realize, I barely have time to slap on some clothes and brush my teeth and get to work or school or whatever it is. So you rush out the door, and on your way to work, school, whatever, you have a flat tire. 
And you say, ah, I know I had this flat tire. I skipped my time with the Lord this morning. And so he got me. I bet if I do it again, he might put me in a car wreck. You know, so I got to really watch out for this. What you've done is you've just gotten superstitious. That's not a relationship. That's not a relationship. So God's not doing stuff to you to get you because you didn't pray as long as you should have or you didn't stay with your routine like you should have. Now, is it good to stay with our routines? Absolutely. But we want to be life-giving and not superstitious. The third thing is discouragement. Most of us probably weren't trained in spiritual disciplines and all these things as a little kid, so we start practicing something. Anytime you begin something for the first time, it's hard. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's learning an instrument. I don't care if it's learning a language. I don't care if it's learning how to, to, uh, to write. You know, remember in school when you had those papers and you had to, you know, make your ABCs and how hard that was? I remember when our daughter Caressa was. and Was it Heidi too? Heidi had the same thing, fear of reading. Like, I'm afraid I'm never going to be able to learn to read. And we, we assured her that she would. She would learn to read. And in her junior year, she finally got a hold of it and... and uh, no, actually, she became a great reader and a great writer and, and probably the most prolific reader of our, of our children. And, but there's this fear, I can't, because it was hard. You know, I don't know what any of these words are. Books look so big. And, and so I just want to encourage you, don't get discouraged. We're just on a journey here. And the truth is we're on a journey with uh, a never-ending, infinite, almighty God. When are we going to get to a prayer life where we say, hey, nobody could have a better prayer life than what I have right now? Never. You know, or I have studied the word more than enough. No, we're never going to arrive. So I really want to encourage you to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. The, the enjoyment really is in the journey because we're growing in God. We're getting to know him more and more. So don't get discouraged. Sometimes you'll look at yourself and you'll say, man, I've just, I've been at this a year and I don't feel like I've grown much. You have. You, you might not notice it, but you have. I promise you, if you're doing the word of God and practicing disciplines and of the scripture, you are growing. It may just be a little. Now, you'll notice that with children. If you hang out with kids all the time, like, like we got little kids around here and you see them regularly, you see them grow, but you don't really notice it. But I will promise you, if you moved away and came back 10 years later and saw uh, Caleb and Rayanne's two children, you would go, oh my goodness, what happened to you guys? But when we grow little by little, we don't always notice it. So don't get discouraged, just keep moving forward. The other thing is pride and arrogance as we begin to practice things in the spirit. We begin to think, I think I've got it. We begin to swell up with pride. Then usually pride and, and law comes together. So we start talking to somebody. Now let's say you get up every morning and you spend 15 minutes in prayer and 15 minutes in scripture. And then you run into somebody and you talk, what's, what's your prayer life and scripture like time in the morning? And they go, I don't really have one. You go, ah. Oh. Well, I spend 15 minutes in prayer and 15 minutes in the Word every morning. Oh, I, are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure you really love the Lord? But then you'll run into somebody who prays two hours every morning and spends an hour in the Word, and you go, oh, my goodness. You'll either do one of two things. You'll feel totally discouraged, or you'll say, seriously, because we know we're normal. You know what I mean? So if I'm spending 15 minutes in prayer and 15 minutes in the Word, and you're not, you're subnormal. If you're doing twice that much, you're a weirdo. I mean, what's wrong with you? I mean, what are you, some kind of freak or something? I mean, what do you do with your life? So we, we think we're normal, but we just need to get into our own rhythm, let God deal with all that. 
I, I was actually trained by the Lord in this. Uh, I'll say the Lord because here's what happened. Back many years ago, I used to be in the computer business, and I was in the computer business and, and pastored here. And one of my coworkers in the computer business came to church one morning, and so afterwards we were chatting, and uh, he said, man, I really enjoyed the service today. It was just, it was, um, it was a little long for me. He said, I'm used to a church service at 60 minutes. You can almost set your clock by it. It's 60 minutes on the nose. And we'll go 80 or 90 minutes as, as a norm for our church service. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, so God's not worth 80 or 90 minutes? You know, 60 minutes is all he's worth? And so there's a, a certain subtle pride or arrogance or superiority that comes in. Because, I mean, we're, we really love God because we go 90 minutes, you know. I don't know about those other churches. Well, not long after that, we went to a conference, and we were attending their Sunday morning church service. Not Sunday school and church, just church service. Our kids weren't very big, so we took them to the children's ministry. And I asked, I said, approximately how long is the service? Get this. They said, usually between two and a half and three hours. Are you kidding me? Two and a half to three hours, I'm thinking to myself. I didn't say that because you want to be spiritual. Like, oh, that's, that's great. And uh, you're going, that's wild. And uh, after I thought about how ridiculous and crazy it was to have a two and a half to three hour service, Sunday morning service, I heard a little something in my head. I said, is God not worth two and a half to three hours? I went, okay, I get it. It was... It was God chastens those he loves. We all, again, I don't know why we always think he's going to break our leg or something, but that was, a, that was a way of chastening me. You got proud because you got a 90-minute service, and pff, are those people even Christians that have an hour service? Now you're confronted with a two-and-a-half to three-hour service, and you're thinking these people are wacko, you know. What, what's up? Because we think we're normal. So just leave all the judgment aside, all the pride, all the arrogance. If you're in a rhythm doing something with God, just enjoy it and don't, don't try to enforce it upon somebody else. Don't feel bad if they go longer or don't feel superior if they go shorter. You get the idea these aren't laws. They're spiritual disciplines to help us grow. So I want to tackle two of them, study and meditation. Now, both of them could receive several hours apiece. So I'm going to trust you to do a little digging on your own. And we are in such an easy world to find information. I mean, with the Internet and stuff like that, now you can find a lot of bad information, too. So I do encourage you, go to reliable, godly sources, because you will find all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Go to reliable sources, and you can learn some more about these topics as well. But I want to begin with study. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, I think the King James, because I cut my teeth on the King James. Most of my verses are memorized in the King James. It's a wonderful work of art, the King James Bible. And I think the King James Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. So we see this study, we see this handling the word of God, and so we need to become students of Scripture and learn more deeply the things of God. Study is valuable for lots of reasons. The, the Bible says that we'll know the truth, and the truth will make or set us free. But oftentimes we don't actually know the truth. I believe we Christians often have like headlines of truth. It'll be like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, did you know this? They 
found the largest vein of gold ever discovered on planet Earth. And you go, that's incredible. Where? And they go, I don't know. When? I don't know. Who found it? I don't know. Well, how did you even know this? Well, I just saw it on the headlines. I walked by a newspaper stand. Largest vein of gold found on planet Earth. Okay, but you don't know anything. I mean, you know something, but you don't really know a whole lot. And sometimes we're like that with the Word of God. We know as Christians, okay, I've been around long enough to know the headlines, prayer, Bible study, you know, going to church, being a generous giver, serving, volunteering, fasting. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I, know, I know the headlines. But if you say, okay, explain to me how those things work, a lot of times you say, I have no idea. I just know those are church kind of things that I've heard all my life that we're supposed to do. We need to know the truth. Peter, or, or James said this, the brother of Jesus, James said this. He said, if you know the truth and you do the truth, listen to what it says. You will be blessed in all your deeds. How's that for a promise? There's some value to knowing the word of God. In fact, I've found this out about God. I would say probably always, but since I'm not for sure, I'll say almost always. God almost always hooks a reward or a blessing to obeying one of his principles. Now, isn't that crazy? You think, why, did, why didn't God just say, you know, again, a lot of fathers parent like this. They tell the kid, do this. And the kid says, why? And they say, because I told you so. I mean, who ought to be able to do that more than anybody but God? Because I told you so. But God says, if you'll do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. You almost always find a blessing or reward or promise connected to a command of God. God knows how we're wired up, and he doesn't mind that we're motivated by reward. Apparently not, because he set up the system. So we know the truth, do the truth, we're blessed in all of our deeds. Study, getting the word of God is, keeps us from sin. Here's a big one. Keeps you from deception. Keeps you from deception. There are two major cults in the United States of America. There's many of them, but two major ones. And by the way, when I, get to, when I say these, you know, you might have a dear friend that's involved in one of them. And we're in such a weird time in our culture that you, you say anything negative and it's like, that's hateful. I'm not being hateful. I'm just telling you what they... In fact, if you go to them and say, does your religion really teach this, if they know what their religion teaches, they would say yes. The two major ones in the United States of America are probably Jehovah Witness and the Mormons. Now, you say, so you don't like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons? I love Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. Had some Jehovah Witnesses come to our house, a young couple, sweetest couple ever. I never told them I was a pastor because I wanted to keep coming back. They were so nice, and they kept coming back and coming back. We kept talking and chatting. But the, the Jehovah Witness will tell you that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not God who wrapped himself in human flesh. The Jehovah Witness teaching is that, that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. And that's biblically wrong. In John, the first chapter, it tells us that clearly that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the Jehovah Witness Bible will retranslate that, and by the way, I just, I, and I asked him this, I said, you, you ought to be a little suspicious because every translation in the world translates it, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yours is the only one on planet Earth that changed capital G God to little g God. And so that's what the um, Jehovah Witnesses teach. In fact, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you'll find a couple chapters clearly portraying that Jesus is not an angel, never was, never will be. In fact, God tells all the angels to worship Jesus. 
That's a clear sign he's God because it is a violation of Scripture to worship anyone but God. Jesus is God clothed in human flesh. Now, so do I hate Jehovah's Witnesses? Absolutely not. I'm just telling you what they believe, and it doesn't line up with Scripture. Now, I was raised with Mormon families, and uh, in grade school, one of my best buddies was a Mormon. Super family, wonderful family, don't hate Mormons, not hating on anybody, just telling you what they believe. The Mormons believe that God the Father and Holy Spirit Mother had celestial relationships and gave birth to children. One of those children was Jesus. Another one of those children was Satan. And God the Father sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world, tick Satan off, and they've been in a combat ever since. Now, that's what Mormons teach. Now, I will tell you this. If you talk to a lot of Mormons, they won't even know that. But if you say, is this true? And they go find out, they'll say, yeah, that's true. In fact, they say if you can become a good Mormon, you can become a God of another world. Like Jesus did. Jesus rose up to a place where he became God and Savior of this world. First of all, I just want to tell you this. Maybe I'm lazy. Way too much energy. I do not want to be a God of a world. Or if I just want to go chill with our God. You know, it sounds like way too much work for me. And um, now, I'm not vilifying them. I'm just telling you what they believe. Darlene and I, for many years, was host on TBN, Trendy Broadcasting Network. And we talked to this one couple who came on and we interviewed who came out of the Mormon church, and they were faithful churchgoers the entire of their life, entire lives until Mormons showed up, and they started, well, they still became faithful churchgoers. They went to the Mormon church. Well, they came out of it, and the number one feeding for the Mormons and Jehovah Witness are us church people who don't know our Bibles. And so they come in, they open up the scriptures, they, and they go, well, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible. And they say, this must be true, because you don't know your Bible. I'm not picking on you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. We just need to learn the scriptures. The value of knowing the word of God is it will keep you from deception. I heard this many, many years ago. Maybe you heard it too. Supposedly, I don't know if this is true. Not everything you hear is true. But I heard that when they train people to find out what counterfeit money is like, they make them handle real money. So when a counterfeit comes by, they can feel this is different. They don't try to make them handle every single counterfeit on planet Earth to figure out which one's a counterfeit. So I believe if we will know the word of God thoroughly, if we'll know the word of God thoroughly and we'll handle it, when a counterfeit comes, we'll go, that just doesn't feel right. That's not right. That's not right. And so one of the incredible benefits of knowing the word of God and studying the word of God is it keeps you from deception. Now, for all of you who have wonderful friends who are Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, so do I. So I'm not beating them up. I'm just telling you what their faith teaches, which does not line up with Scripture. So as we study the word of God, it keeps us from deception, but also what does it begins to reveal Jesus to us. We begin to know him. We begin to know how he lived and how we can have a life in him. So it helps us mold ourselves and be transformed into the image of Jesus. So let's look at this very interesting passage on study in John chapter 5. In John 5, 37 through 40, 37 says this, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Now, I just want you to know, he's talking to learned Jewish Bible scholars at this point. Okay? Learned Jewish Bible scholars. They're brilliant in the Jewish scripture. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Jesus had. 
Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then listen to this, it's very interesting. Nor does his word dwell in you. Now it's crazy because these people were crazy smart in the scriptures. I always remember when, when uh, was it King Herod said, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? The Jewish teachers of the law said, in Bethlehem, for it is written. And they gave a scripture. They knew just like that where the Messiah was to be born. Just like that. Because they were super crazy proficient in the scripture. And yet Jesus is looking at these people and he says, God's word does not dwell in you. They were probably thinking, what are you saying God's word doesn't dwell in me? Listen to why he says that. For you do not believe the one he has sent. You do not believe the one he has sent. And then he'll go on to explain a little more. He says this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. See, Jesus was saying, you study this, which is what I'm trying to encourage us to do, to study this. But he says, you're studying this because you think that in this, there's eternal life. There's not. I could take, I'm talking as a book, ink on paper. I, we could just bring in sinners today and I could whack them on the head. And it does, they don't get eternal life from that. They could read it every day and be lost. Unless... They start seeing what this is about and who it's about. And then when they start reading this, they go, wow, this is pointing to Jesus. Jesus said, you study these scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But no, these scriptures speak about me. So what was he saying? The Messiah, the one you've longed for and awaited for, is now standing in front of you speaking to you and you can't see him. You can't see I'm the Messiah. That's why I know this word does not dwell in you. And, and that's why I know you're honoring the scripture from an intellectual point of view and not a spiritual point of view. There, there's study for the sake of knowledge. I like to study for that. There's study for the sake of knowledge and for learning, but then there's spiritual study. There's study that that turns from knowledge and learning into spiritual enlightenment. Now, not all the Jewish people rejected Jesus. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish men gave their lives to Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see many of the priests believed. But those were the ones that said, wow, I'm seeing that all this stuff we found so precious, which is precious. I hope I'm not saying this wrong. The scripture is precious. But the beauty of the scripture is it points us to Jesus. And we learn of him. And we go to him for eternal life. And then we begin to have a transformation. Because Jesus said, I don't have the overhead for it, but in John 6, 63, Jesus said this, My words are spirit, and they are life. My words are spirit, and they are life. And so when we go to the word of God, the word of God, and I, I, believe, I believe this ink on, pa on paper has a supernatural power to it. I believe, and, and it's so hard to say it properly, because... It really is paper on ink. You see what I'm saying without... You got, no, I'm not saying what you're saying. Okay. This is a book that holds spiritual truths. And the spiritual truths have power. But there's nothing necessarily supernatural about ink and paper. I mean, you can go home and grab any book that has ink and paper on. But it's the message of this book that has power. And we think, well, well we couldn't do anything without the Bible. I just want to tell you this. The church was birthed without this Bible. 
the church was birthed without this Bible. It was birthed because Jesus was being talked about. And this Bible talks about Jesus. So I love the Bible, obviously. I love teaching it. I love the Bible. But it's pointing us to Jesus. So the word needs to dwell in us, which draws us closer to Jesus when the spirit of his word, the life of his word is operating in it. And it's not just what the Bible calls dead letter. It has life. It has spirit to it. And so it's a beautiful example that Jesus just gave us. Here's a group of people that probably know the word of God intellectually and knowledge-wise better than any of us here today, but they couldn't see the Messiah. And then you have somebody who the only scripture they know is John 3.16, and they saw Jesus in it and gave their lives to the Lord, and they've been transformed, and they know one Bible verse because it pointed them to Jesus. Well, the, I, I like merging... We're going to move to meditation. I like merging scripture and meditation together, uh, study and meditation, because it works for me. This isn't a rule, by the way. This is just what I like, and I'll tell you why I like it. But before I do that, I want to talk about meditation. Meditation often gets a bad rap because we think of transcendental meditation or, or Eastern meditation or whatever. But the Bible talks about meditation all throughout it. The difference between Christian meditation... And Eastern meditation is this. Christian meditation is about you filling up on something. That you fill yourself with the word and with God. Eastern meditation, if you ever read or study about it, is all about emptying yourself. You want to empty yourself of your thoughts. You want to empty your mind. You want to empty everything. That's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is fill up on something. You know, fill up on the word of God. And to meditate means to ponder or to chew or to think about uh, we'll often say this, well, let me chew on that for a few days. What are we saying? I'm going to think, I'm going to ponder, I'm going to think about this. You're meditating on that topic or that issue. And that's what Christian meditation is. So I like the link of meditation scripture a lot. Some people like prayer and meditation, that's fine. In fact, probably should do both. Scripture study and meditation, prayer and meditation, uh, and fill up our minds. But I like the scripture because a big part of meditation is to meditate on his word to meditate on what he said so if we study a little bit and then we get a thought let's ponder it chew on it meditate on it had a uh, a guy who really loved jesus and was a, a great mentor and he said he stayed in psalm 23 for i forget now something like six months because he just kept meditating on it kept getting truth from it and life from it I would rather spend six months in one chapter of the Bible and grow spiritually and come alive spiritually than say, I read through the whole Bible. Did you grow any? Nope, but I read through the whole Bible. Let, let's meditate on the word of God. So let's look at a, a few verses on meditation. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one. Now, he's going to give us three things not to do, okay? And one thing to do. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. In other words, they're not doing what the wicked do. Or stand in the way that sinners take. So they're not walking the path of sinners. Nor sit in the seat of mockers. So there's three things not to do. So we say, okay, well, I'm not going to be in step with the wicked, take the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Then, But here's something to do. But blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the scripture, and who meditates on this law day and night. 
We've already seen that that person's blessed that does this. So we already have a reward connected to obeying the word. But then he goes on and says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in the season and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever they do, what happens? It prospers. Now, what a blessing God is giving. And it hubs around meditation. Now, David... I believe David was, I actually forgot to look that up, because Psalms are written by a lot of different people, but a big chunk of them is written by David. I think David wrote uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is like the longest chapter in the Bible. And in Psalm 119, David tells a couple things, which I thought was interesting, because we see the angle both ways. And so, we're not going to look it up, but in Psalm 119.11 and in Psalm 119.101, he says, remember this in the King James, Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against thee so the word of god comes into our lives and it keeps us from sinning now it doesn't force us not to sin but it gets rooted in us to where our our desires are different but then later in 101 he says something that's kind of a little different angle he says basically this i have fallen so in love with your word that i i'm very careful about where i go and what i do because i don't want to violate this word that i so deeply love so the word he deeply loves keeps him from sinning, but then it, it gives him motivation not to sin. But then also the word he so deeply loves, he wants to protect it. So the word comes in and works out and then out and then in. And so there's this desire that I want to honor the word of God. Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. It's, it's a treasure. It's beautiful. It needs to be thought about, meditated on, chewed on. Uh, Psalm 119, great one. So the word gets hidden in us and keeps us from sinning and guards us. But we've studied it. We've meditated on it. We've chewed on it. If we only know headlines, we don't know. We say, well, I know this. In, in church, we ought to behave. Well, what's that mean? What's it mean to behave? In fact, if you go out and talk to people, ideas of behavior are totally different levels. It's all there. So what does the word of God say? Had somebody talk to me this week who said, here's a scenario. What about this issue? And I said, well, here's what... The, what God teaches on that. And here's what we should know from studying the word of God. So here's a couple of additional meditation focuses for us to look at. Meditate on God by pondering creation. So if you say, okay, I meditate on the word and that's good for me. But what's other things I can meditate? Creation sparks meditation or thinking about the bigness of God. Maybe the word meditation scares you. Let's call it thinking about. I always break into worship. It's always hard to say always, but I think I always do. Every time I look at a thick, starry sky. I look at a thick, starry sky, and I go, wow, God, you're good. There's a great one right here. Uh, we used to live in the Parsonage back there, and there's not a lot of light out here. There's more now than there used to be, but you can see the Milky Way cutting across there. The stars are thick. And I look up and go, wow, God, you're good. And then I think of a scripture, because I've meditated on the word, that says he knows every one of them by name. And I don't think that's figurative. I think it's literal. I think I'd say, okay, what's that one? And he could pop off the names. And so then I start thinking, what kind of reserve capacity does this God have? He can create and rule the universe and name every star? And so then I start getting excited. I start going, wow, God, you are amazing. And it just spirals into worship and into praise and into meditation. One day, it's actually up at the Parsonage, there was a flower we didn't plant. And it was growing up and, and um, came up every year. It was an iris. 
Well, you've probably all seen an iris. I've looked at irises. You know, it's pretty flower. But one day I walked by this iris, and I stopped, and I looked at it. And I really, like, focused in. I went, that's amazing. I began to look at that, just the curvature, the, the, the color, the beauty, the depth of it. And I began to go, wow, God, you're amazing. Is the iris the only beautiful flower? No. There's so many. God loves variety. He's a craftsman beyond belief. And so it just makes you begin to go, oh, my goodness. And, and this flower, this iris grows up. Now, I want you to think about this. Many times that iris had grown up and seemingly served no purpose. But that's fine because God's got limitless capacity. And I'm very serious about this. Now, this could be out there, but I just want us to think about this. There's nothing in Scripture that violates that. What if God said, I'm going to put that iris in the ground. It's going to grow up for five, six years, and no one's ever going to notice it. But one day, my son, Tracy's going to walk by, and he's going to look at that iris, and he's going to break into praise. And he's going to worship me. And he's going to adore me. And then he's going to stand before a bunch of people and tell Tell them how good God is because of a flower, because of an iris. Now, I know we may say, well, that's a little arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just trying to let you know the incredible capacity God has. He could have done that with no problem at all. And we go, well, you think God planted that flower just so you one day, who do you think? I don't think I'm anybody. I think God's something. I think he's amazing. And so you can look at creation. Have you ever been to a beach and saw the ocean waves come in? Does it not make you want to praise God? If you know the scripture, you remember God talking to Job, and he said, Job, you think you know all that? Well, let me answer me this. How do I make those ocean waves stop right there? Well, how, how did I do that? And he started going, I don't know how you did that. That's amazing. You're amazing. Uh, a mountain, a bubbling brook, uh, uh, a bumblebee. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You look at creation, and it ought to spark Worship, because Romans chapter 1 says all creation cries out, there is a creator. And so I don't want you to look at creation uh, the same way. I want you to look at it differently. I want you to look at everything, just see how amazing creation is. And I think of, of God's incredible love for variety when I look at creation. How about this one? Meditate on God's virtues. When you meditate on creation, it often flows you into his virtues, his goodness, his mercy, his love. His power, his capacity. It just, it's amazing. So, you know, I, I used to sit around, and some people say, well, I think that's crazy, but I'd sit around and I'd think, where did God come from? Wow, he, he always was, always has been, always will be. Wow. Now, some people say, well, if I can't figure it out in my mind, then it's not real. Oh, my friends. Please believe God's bigger than your mind. Please believe he's... We're in trouble if he's not bigger than my mind and your mind. I've thought about getting a big whiteboard up here one time, drawing a giant circle on it, and just saying to all of us, what, what do you think your understanding and comprehension of the universe is? Let's fill in that circle, that giant circle up there to demonstrate how wise you are in knowing everything that's in the universe. And you know what most of us would do? We'd probably take it and just beep, put a little dot on it. Okay, that's true. 
So look at all that space around that little dot. There's God and more and more. His, his power, his love, his capacity is absolutely amazing. And you know, just take a moment with regularity to sit down and just think, how did you stop the ocean waves at that point? How did you hang those stars in space? How did you make our solar system, which according to those who study it, is so intricate and perfectly designed? How did you do that? How? And let it blow your mind. See, I believe in God because, well, lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is when I think about him, my mind short circuits. I started thinking about God and I go, I, I'm done. I reached my capacity and it didn't take long. I reached my capacity and my mind's blown about how big God is. And would he be a God if he didn't do that to us? By very virtue and nature of God. So I want to give you some recommended reading here. These are a couple books. Probably most of what I've learned came from these two books from scripture. And then I have read as most of you probably have two dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about, about uh, spiritual disciplines. But I think Richard Foster wrote a masterful one in Celebration of the Disciplines. Uh, he does a great job explaining how they are, why they're not laws and their practices. And if you say, I'd like to learn a little more about study or about meditation or whatever, he, he does a good job. Uh, also, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney, uh, another great book. And so I, w- I want to encourage you. And, and by the way, maybe you don't want to get a book. I guarantee you, you can you can search the internet for topics on just use this guy's name, book, and and you'll find articles that can help you learn more about Christian meditation, about studying the Word of God. But I also want you to see all the power, and all the privilege, and all the blessing, and all the benefit that comes as we study God's Word, and as we meditate on His goodness. Let's pray together.